I tend to think of stress and anxiety as the potent fertilizer for eating disorder development and maintenance. So learning to deal with stress, anxiety, and then obsessive compulsive um, or any other uh, challenges that the person may have. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hi, welcome to the podcast. This week, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Therese Waterhouse. And Therese is a registered dietitian in the state of Oregon. She has been working in the field of eating disorders for a very long time now. Um, in fact, hey, you know what? I'll let her introduce herself. Yeah, here's Therese. Hi, my name's Therese Waterhouse. Um, I am licensed as a dietitian nutritionist in the state of Oregon. I work in Corvallis, Oregon. I've got a private practice. I treat mostly people with eating disorders. Um, I'm also a certified eating disorder registered dietitian. Uh, that's a certification from IADEP, the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. And I'm also an approved supervisor for IADEP. Not only is Therese somebody who is very well qualified and very experienced to talk about eating disorders, she is somebody that really gets it. She understands how these beasts work. In today's podcast, we talk about things like the healthy brain versus the eating disorder brain. Um, we talk about anxiety during recovery and anxiety peaks and, and how these can be managed. We talk about the importance of a treatment team all working together and being really unified in delivering whatever messages of recovery they need to deliver to the sufferer and anybody else, like the sufferer's parents or family. Uh, we talk about exercise um, and the misunderstandings that some healthcare professionals have around that. We also talk about the misunderstandings that some healthcare professionals have around um, things like diet and what it means for a person to be truly recovered. But where we start is we start to talk about some of the myths that surround inpatient treatment. So what do I mean by myths of inpatient treatment? Well... Let's let Therese answer that. Here's the podcast. There is this myth that I encounter frequently or just a misperception on the part of both doctors, therapists, families, any healthcare practitioner really, but they think, okay, if I send this child, adolescent, or even an adult, I'll send them to a residential treatment center and they come back all fixed. It's all over. It's done. The eating disorder is done. And this, this especially is true if the person comes back and they're indeed weight restored. If they've had anorexia nervosa, <clears throat> they go to the residential treatment. They get fed. They have the 24-hour you know, support. They have meal support. They come back home and they're weight restored. And there's a real misperception that I encounter frequently on the part of practitioners that, okay, they're fixed, they're weight restored, so therefore they must be fixed. Therese, let's start with, because that, what you said there right at the beginning, there's this myth. Where, why do you <clears throat> think that myth exists? Because it doesn't exist in, say, for example, if I was going to go to a hospital for um, some kind of surgery or, or other kind of operation, it wouldn't, nobody would think as soon as I was out, oh, you're done, you're recovered. Every, you know, it's mm. expected that there's a there's a recovery period afterwards that's actually almost more important than the actual operation or at mm -hmm. least as crucial. So why do you think, who sold people this myth? Like, why is that there? 
Well, the most skeptical part of me would say I think residential treatment centers may want to think of themselves as being, you know, the whole meal deal, like they can do the whole thing. And I think part of the evidence for that is the fact that the transition between different levels of care is often so rough. You know, sometimes people are literally just <clears throat> kind of tossed back into the outpatient setting. The, the good treatment centers will, of course, try to set up appointments with a dietitian and a therapist and a doctor in the outpatient setting, but they might not have done the homework. Are these people really adept and well-trained in eating disorders? Um, so I think some of it is is the way residential treatment centers have sold themselves. That's kind of the skeptical view. I think the other view is the perception that it is all about weight, which is another error in thinking on the part of practitioners, because it's really more state than weight. Um, most people with a lot of eating disorders training know that. They know that it's state not just weight, um, weight restoration is the first step. And then there are a lot of other things. Your body continues to repair itself for up to a year, maybe longer once you are weight restored. But then also there's the whole gaining the skill for yourself, gaining the competence, the whole mental aspect of learning to feed yourself independently. I call it the maintenance period. So it's actually quite dangerous when somebody comes back from residential treatment, they may be weight restored, but now they're back in their community, they're back in their job, and they've gone from sort of 24-7 support in many cases. Some treatment centers have various step-down procedures, but they go from a lot of support to sometimes very little, and that can be very scary and stressful again. Um, I also think that on the part of practitioners back home, back in the community, if they haven't had a lot of eating disorder training, and if they're still quite uncomfortable treating eating disorders or interacting with somebody with an eating disorder, they're not quite sure what to do. And they really do want to be kind of optimistic and think that everything's finished. Same with parents. I see parents often, you know, uh, their son or daughter comes back, their weight restored, and the parents, if they haven't been really well prepared to carry on with family-based treatment kinds of procedures, they would really prefer to, in, you know, mentally, they just want to think that this is over. Nobody wants to think about, oh, I might have to continue supporting this person for up to a year or more, and how do I do that? And so the outpatient team really has to help the people back at home, um, you know, with that question, how do I do this? What's the next step? The person looks physically okay, but so why aren't they okay? And so I think the outpatient team needs to be able to answer those questions and then help uh, the support people, the family, spouses, whomever know what to do next. And quite often that's a deficit of knowledge on the part of practitioners. Yeah. And I think what you say there about a person looking okay, but they're not okay, it, it's difficult for some people to understand. Um, and it's, it's the, I think the bigger part of the problem is you know, the body heals faster than the brain does with eating disorders, mm. but the body needs to heal in order for the brain to start. Um, but there's this, there's this very real lag, which can be for a long time. And I know um, 
quite a few uh, adults who have been into inpatient, um, say, four or five times over um, their lifetimes. Mm. And many of them say to me, um, which I found curious at first, but now I'm beginning to understand more, that they're actually scared of looking better because people don't know that they're still unwell. Like they have been Mm. through it so many cycles that there's a part of them that's now actually scared of being, going to inpatient, getting weight restored because they know that then people treat them as if they are well and they know that they're not well. And so it just, it just turns into this cycle and that's a really bad place to get um, sufferers into where they're actually scared of going into treatment because they're scared of looking well because then they know that the treatment stops isn't that profound I I mean to me that's just a profound reality and I've heard that too you know that that as soon as I start looking better everybody treats me like it's gone everybody treats me like there's no shred of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa left and they don't understand that I'm still grappling mentally um and skill wise with uh you know, what the the diseases leave in their wake. And um, I think practitioners really need to become skilled in that next step. You know, the easy part often is weight restoration in a residential treatment center um, because they've got it down, you know, supported meals. And then it's quite scary for somebody coming home uh, and they don't have any support, no meal support, no nothing. Uh, nobody plating their food, nobody preparing food, nobody helping them with shopping. So, you know, and those are all their, their kind of unglamorous skills, but they're skills people need, uh, you know, to become comfortable with. The other thing I see, too, often is that once a person's weight restored, all of a sudden they're released, sometimes by the physician or the treatment team, to go back to full exercise. Whatever they did before, go back to competitive running or volleyball or whatever it is because your body looks just great now so go back to your sport and again as as you may appreciate that's pretty dangerous that's a dangerous slope to start going down i'm so happy that you mentioned exercise because you know (laughs) know it's one of my favorite things to talk about it's it's so important that a person who's had an eating disorder and if especially if exercise is a component of that that they stop exercise for a prolonged period of time you know like a year or mm-hmm. until it's completely out of the the system it's completely habitual and the obsession and the compulsion because it is a compulsion to exercise mm-hmm. is gone. and um it, it, that's, an, that's another thing that I feel that, like you said, a lot come out and maybe physicians, because they're so used to the message that exercise is healthy for everyone yes. that we've been sold, um, that they they just apply that as they would to anyone else. And what they see, say, for example, where if, if somebody goes and they're treated for a broken limb or broken their leg, you know, they, they, they don't mend the limb and then go, go straight back to full running because they can see mm. they can see that that would be disastrous for that person. Because all they see in front of them is what presents as a healthy-looking person. They're just, we should do all the things that a healthy person should do, like exercise, which can be devastating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree, and I see that all the time, especially in young people, teenagers, because oftentimes 
adolescents have been involved in a competitive sport, you know, football or soccer or basketball or volleyball or track. And it's so uh, lauded, you know, it's considered such a great thing. And sometimes, um, you know, families are hoping their child gets a college scholarship due to the sport or, you know, there's a lot of weight placed on being a competitive athlete in high school. And it almost, I, I see it more often than not with the adolescents, um, it truly is a goal to get them back there almost as soon as possible. So again, what that has taught me <clears throat> is that we really need more practitioner training in just exactly what are eating disorders. And if I feel if people really appreciate that, they will sort of for themselves erase this myth that you can just send somebody off get their weight up and then boom, or extinguish purging behaviors and then boom, they can go right back to exercise, go right back to fully, fully independent um, uh, living with, uh, you know, picking their own meals and so on and so forth. Because I pretty much, I, I can all say from my own experience, 100% of the time, that just isn't true. So I think we we have a lot of practitioner training to do, and it would be really interesting to kind of parcel out, you know, what are the pieces of information that are missing for practitioners? Yeah, and sort of, um, I think that you're absolutely <coughs> key with the training part, because it is so different from the general population, despite that when a person is weight restored, they present as, inverted commas, normal. Um, mm -hmm. And so... You can somewhat forgive practitioners that are not trained in, in properly understanding this type of illness in thinking, oh, this person's well again. Well, off you go. Mm -hmm. That's all life. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even saying that, I mean, I still struggle because, because the, the number of adults that I know that are yo-yo in and out almost every year, it's an inpatient <laughs> stay. You know, mm. isn't anybody mm -hmm. clicking on to think this isn't working? What we're doing right. is not working. I think a few people are. I, th I think it's definitely a conversation in, you know, the, the people who primarily treat eating disorders and they've noticed this. Um, and I, I, I have heard a, com um, a lecture by Dr. Craig Johnson, who's with Eating Recovery Center, and he said, you know, years ago, insurance would pay for a 180-day stay at a treatment center. So you could go much longer mm. <clears throat> with the person um, and get them much more further in recovery. I'm not sure that 180 days e even, you know, would do it. Nowadays, they want people in and out in 20 or 30 days. You know, they're, they're really, you know, how insurance, I mean, so insurance has driven some of this, you know, get them in, get them weight restored, get them out, you know, and, and they have a cutoff oftentimes based on weight or BMI, which is quite artificial. Um, but I do think there is a conversation now and more of an appreciation for what I call the maintenance period. So once a person is free of purging behaviors or most purging behaviors, once a person is weight restored, medically restored, uh, nutritionally restored, what comes next? And I call that period of time, which can be a year or more, uh, the maintenance period. And that's where you slowly, I think the treatment team and the supportive people around that person, I always start, if somebody's coming to, to my practice after residential, I try to keep everything the same. 
where were they in residential? What was therapy like? What were, what was meal support like? What was exercise like? Any of those parameters, we will keep them the same and hold that person there for the next several months. And so that takes a lot of supportive <clears throat> excuse me, constructs around that person, their family. It's most easy for me with an adolescent because usually they still have family members, but even with adults, you know, they need support around them to keep everything the same. And then you gradually, as you go through, you know, I like to see the therapist's continue to work with that person on anxiety and OCD tendencies, how much is that still there or not, and then give them some skill building, you know, teach them to recognize their anxiety, teach them to work with that and manage anxiety and stress. I think that's crucial, you know, and especially when somebody's coming back into the community from a treatment center, you know, the being back in the community may be stressful for them for hundreds of different reasons. <clears throat> so they need to know how to manage their stress so the eating disorder behaviors don't creep back in. Because I, I tend to think of stress and anxiety as the potent fertilizer for eating disorder development and maintenance. So learning to deal with stress, anxiety, and then obsessive compulsive um, or any other uh challenges that the person may have. So OCD tendencies, very common in people with restrictive eating disorders. So to your point, you have to look at those, manage those, and help the person recognize if they're going to eventually return to some form of physical activity. How do we all monitor as a team, and how do we give that person the skills to even recognize within themselves Am I starting to be compulsive or obsessive with my exercise? Um, and how do I ratchet that back? So it's a slow process of, you know, you let the line out a little bit, reel it back in, let the line out. And I do that in terms of food flexibility and eating on one's own. You know, it's a slow process. It's not just drop the person into the middle <clears throat> of reality and say, okay, here you go, good luck. Because as you've said, it doesn't work. And um, you also um, touched on that, well, you spoke a lot about anxiety. And I think that, that many of us uh, um, adults, uh, you know, I mainly talk to adults in recovery, but then also children in recovery, that's not very well understood as yet. I think Dr. Laura Hills, I think there's, there's research and sh be, things being done around this, but the levels of anxiety <coughs> at some point in recovery for some reason go up before they go down so yes it, during the refeeding stage there is anxiety and then I think anxiety lessens a little bit in a sort of maintenance but then it suddenly hits again and goes up before it then actually goes down quite a lot and so many people don't get through that part you know and they've come mm -hmm. so far they've come so far it's devastating and then but if, if if it was more talked about if we actually really understood this anxiety hit that goes up before it comes down again and gets worse before it gets better, then that can be watched out for if that person's being monitored and if a team is working for them, then that can be that can be supported and they can be held through that anxiety so they mm -hmm. make it to the other side rather than reverting back to the things that they know reduces anxiety for them, which is primarily restricting food and exercising. Right, right. No, and I hear frequently with people too it's like well you know we really want 
him or her to get back to their sport because it reduces their anxiety. And people don't realize, yes, but you are in fact then playing into the eating disorder. So with parents, though, I mean, how much of you, how much of that do you actually think that is still the parents not really wanting to fully sort of take on, this is going to change our child's life and our child just might not be an elite athlete because of this illness and we have to be okay with that and give up on that a little bit. I do think parents need a lot of coaching about that. And this is what's hard. I mean, I do, I I will discuss that. And I, you know, the therapists I work with will usually discuss that. Um, This is where it's so critically important that the outpatient team, so I work strictly in outpatient, the outpatient team has to be on the same page because I see quite frequently that they're not. So the physician, as you said, and and I don't mean to be slamming physicians, but quite frequently they're more worried about childhood obesity epidemic than disordered eating and or compulsion, you know, exercise compulsive behavior. And the, the whole goal is get the person back to where they were versus oh, you know, we've just had something happen. I mean, we've uh, diagnosed anorexia nervosa. This, this will change this person. You know, they, they, may have, they may have a different life path because of this. They're going to have to be aware of different things because of this. <clears throat> so I think it's really hard if you have one member of a team saying to the parents, oh, no, they'll be back doing track in no time whatsoever. Parents want to hear that. Of course they do. That's a much better message than me or the therapist saying, well, we should probably take a long time off. Maybe they could do, do some yoga, you know, or some something else or walking the dog or some light, you know, sometimes we do start out with some light exercise, you know, some bicycling with the family or something like that. But then we all have to, you know, I have my antenna way up to see if, if that naughty eating disorder is going to creep in there and say, well, you know, no, let's really bike 20 miles. Uh, two miles isn't enough. Even listening to you say that, and it, it makes me so angry to even hear that there might be a person on a treatment team for somebody with an eating disorder saying things like, oh, they should be able to get back to track and running. And it, it, just, mm-hmm. it's, it just shows such a complete um, lack of understanding about how the illness works. And it, it's a liability as well, because that, like you said, the parents want to hear that. And then the parents can relay that back to the person, the child. And then the child starts to think, okay, no, exercise is good. I should do this. And it, it's a complete confusion there because a mm-hmm. part of that person, a part of that sufferer knows this is bad for me. This is killing me. This is, this is, I know, you know, there's always a part that sort of knows this is not a healthy behavior. But then when people in authority, like parents, like treatment um, professionals are saying things that go in line with what the eating disorder wants to hear, that, mm-hmm. that can damage a person. That, that can really make that behavior entrenched and affect the rest of their life. Yes. Yes. And I always, I call it the healthy brain versus the eating disorder brain. And uh, re- regarding sort of that obsessive thought about food or exercise, I'll always ask people, because I, we live in this very healthy town, 
uh, here in Oregon, it's very, very health conscious. Everybody exercises and runs and bikes. And so there's a lot of that around here just in the culture um, and healthy eating. There's a lot of healthy eating and vegetarianism and so on and so forth. But I always ask people, it's like, sure, it's good to think about moving your body and it's good to think about healthy eating and use some nutrition, basic nutrition facts, you know, such as having enough vegetables or whatever. But, but if you're making a decision about eating that's really rooted in fear, if you're making a decision about exercise that's really rooted in fear of not exercising, I'm sorry, but that's that sneaky little eating disorder worming its way back in. So fear versus not fear for me is kind of a definer. And I often will try to play that back to parents and uh, adolescents and adults. It's like, try to figure out for yourself, am I doing this out of fear? Because that's the ruling of the eating disorder um, versus just, you know, I'm doing something for enjoyment. And I think <clears throat> toward the end of the maintenance period, which may be a year, maybe two years, maybe longer, it just depends on the person and they're all different. But at some point <clears throat> when they are re-engaging, say in some physical activity, again, you have to continue to ask them, could you take a day off? You know, what happens if you have to sit on a plane for two days because you're traveling around the world? Like, do you notice fear coming up? And so I think they really need to be taught that. And hopefully in therapy, they're kind of taught to recognize when am I calm? When am I fearful? And apply that skill to, you know, their present state and their concern about activity, non-activity. So moving the conversation back to treatment centers... Teresa and I then began to talk about how treatment centers can be used effectively. I don't mean to be slamming residential treatment centers at all. I, I hope nothing sounded like that. There's definitely a time and a place when people need that 24-hour support. They might not have anything else. They really need um, that level of care and supervision to get them a, sort of a leg up. But I do look at residential treatment and partial hospitalization programs <clears throat> just as that. It's a leg up. Mm -hmm. And really, the longest period of time toward recovery does happen outpatient. I mean, that maybe that's just my opinion, but that, that's what I've seen. I'm very much in agreement with you there. And it's really just that kickstart. And if you think of a person's recovery period as a two-year period, that that inpatient's only going to be two or three weeks sometimes out of that. So, it, um, you know, hopefully more, but I know some people really only go in for a short time because that's all their insurance will cover. Um, yeah. But, you know, so it really just is that. And it's it can be if worked in with um, substantial outpatient care and if the person is a child then a lot of family-based therapy and a teamwork after that it can be a great kickstart it can just mm -hmm. be that first bit to actually get the person's body into a safe place yes and then <clears throat> and then the other part that that i think treatment centers need to do is really ensure a good transition to the outpatient team. And that means you have to know that outpatient team. You have to know that they're competent and that they will continue with the work you've started. And I was just talking with a father. He was desperate. His daughter is in, I think, a residential for the third go-round. She's an adolescent. 
um, third go-round in residential treatment. He and the mother are divorced, but willing to work together. In all of these three residential treatment go-rounds, they've never been adequately prepared to fully work together. And then their child would be referred, most recently she was referred to a therapist who actually said to the family, I don't work with parents. So the parents were starting to be worked with at the treatment center, but then outpatient was referred to a therapist who just said straight up, I don't work with parents. And so where does that leave the family and this girl? All of a sudden her parents are floundering and wanting to know what to do next and nobody's telling them, you know, these are the next steps. Therese is a really interesting woman. And so I asked her to give us a little bit more information on her and her history with um, eating disorder and how she came to be such an expert in eating disorders and family-based therapy. I've, I've been in private practice. I guess I, I started as an advocate um, because I, I have a daughter who developed anorexia nervosa between the ages of 11 and 12. And where we were, there, there literally were no practitioners. I got a lot of bad advice from well-meaning, very well-meaning pediatricians, therapists, psychiatrists, but none of them were fully versed in eating disorders. So uh, I, I found Laura Collins and her book. Um, I was on the founding board of Feast, um, and I kind of launched I, you know, into FBT, and we literally, our daughter had, had been at a treatment center and done very well there, but there was something missing. There was like that final capstone, which I think you get outpatient, and that's what you know, is the maintenance part. There was something that had to be done to get her off of a food plan, get her onto kind of her more independent living and ready for college. And so we did that. We did FBT at home, <clears throat> kind of on our own using Feast. Feast was launched. I, I was a moderator on the Feast forum for three years. And kind of through that was sort of shoved into, oh, why don't you start a private practice? And so I've had a private practice since 2009 here um, in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley. And I see mostly people with eating disorders. And a lot of what I do, I'm kind of a solo information and referral center. People call me from all over the country just wanting to know what should they do? You know, what should they say to their practitioner? And I, I give out lots of resources. And I also see quite a few people, um, you know, I see a lot of adolescents and their families, and I do home-based refeeding and coaching of the families. And it's basically FBT principles. I don't say I do FBT because I don't do manualized FBT, but I definitely use the principles of family-based treatment, empower the parents, and I've had quite a bit of success. Um, that, so that's why I say, you know, and I'm licensed as a dietitian, and, but that's why I say, you know, other um, licenses can, can learn this skill set and carry it forward. So I, I enjoy that. And I've also trained other meal companions. I think my oldest client was over 80. Um, and, and I worked with her daughters and her husband to do meal support for her. Um, it was difficult. It helped her somewhat. But, you know, when someone's 80 and they've had anorexia for much of their life, 
you know, you, it, it, there's some different goals ahead of you. Did you hear that? Therese was involved in Feast right from the very beginning. And Feast is the website that gave me the tools that I needed as an adult to work out how to recover from an eating disorder. I took the principles of family-based therapy as that Feast forum that Therese spoke about, that she moderated at the beginning for three years. I, I read what the parents were doing on that forum and I worked out how to do that on my own self as an adult. So such a powerful um, organization Feast is to help so many people. Um, now, Therese is also involved in something pretty exciting right now. Um, and I wanted to tell you guys a little bit about that. So here's Therese again. Recently, I wrote and received um, a grant. It's called a Health Transformation Grant. It's funded by the local inter-community health network coordinated care organization uh, here in this region of Oregon. And it is to train practitioners across three counties. And these are oftentimes people practicing in remote and rural areas of Oregon. So we will be extending training and I'm happy that Tabitha Farrar is one of the trainers. Um, so I've got good trainers from all over the country and we'll be delivering uh, eating disorder education to 45 or so practitioners scattered about three counties. Um, so I'm quite excited about that. It's a different model of training people and um, getting people excited about treating eating disorders and also being ready. You know, they will stand ready and waiting to get people after residential treatment, um, you know, hopefully knowing more about how to help people through the next phase. Yeah, and I'm so excited about this because <coughs> it's, it's tackling all the things that we talked about before. It's tackling sort of the, the, the coming out of residential treatment piece by, by training the mm -hmm. treatment providers in what these illnesses actually need. Um, yes. You know, so, so rather than blaming them and saying you should be doing this, or just actually helping them, training them, working with them to make this better. Yes, because I will say, I mean, every practitioner I've ever met really has a good heart. You know, they, they don't go into healthcare because they're mean or vengeful, <laughs> but they really have a good heart and they want to know more. They just haven't had uh, appropriate training. Yes. And, you know, to, to some extent, eating disorder, eating disorder patients as sufferers, we're not particularly helpful when we're sick because we don't, <laughs> the eating no. disorder won't allow us to say, I need this or I need that. No, it doesn't let us do that. So, um, but, but, you know, now it's when we usually come out the other side and people that have worked with them for long enough that fully understand them and really <coughs> get it that mm. can actually inform um, other healthcare practitioners. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fabulous. I'm just thrilled about it, actually. Me too. A huge thank you to Therese Waterhouse for joining me in that conversation. Therese is somebody with a lot of knowledge, as you might have gathered. If you are interested in reaching out to her um, for advice or referrals to maybe a um, clinician or dietitian, then she can be reached online. And I have linked to where you can reach her in the show notes to this episode. One thing that Teresa and I um, spoke about, sort of, we, there was lots of things covered in that podcast just now, uh, but something that sort of occurred to me afterwards that I don't know whether we, we covered enough was um, the fact that a lot of therapists 
sometimes say to either parents, and I've had um, patients, adult sufferers, tell me that they've been told, I just don't deal with eating disorders. I, I don't do eating disorders. I, I have one adult sufferer that was told, you know, eating disorders are, are terrifying and I'm sorry, I'm just not able to help you. Um, you'll have to find somebody else that is willing to treat an eating disorder. And so that really shows that it's um, therapists, practitioners, clinicians, a lot of the time, these are the people that are saying, I do not have the tools to deal with this illness. And with the grant that Teresa's um, leading and that I'm also involved in, in being a trainer on, this is, this is what we're trying to do here. We're actually going in saying, hey, these people are telling us loud and clear in their reluctance to treat people with eating disorders that they don't know how to do it. Um, and eating disorders are treatable. That has to be the message. And the work that Teresa is putting together with this grant, it's taking that message of eating disorders are treatable and here is how they can be successfully be treated and giving that knowledge to clinicians, to therapists, so that rather than saying, I can't treat eating disorders or eating disorders scare me, they can say, okay, we can treat this. So yeah, um, I'm sure we'll keep you updated on, on how that training and the grant's going um, and how effective it is as well, which I'm pretty sure it will be. It's sort of trying to bring everything together and the knowledge that people that, who do have in-depth knowledge about eating disorders can bring to and support healthcare practitioners with and so that everybody in the end can receive better treatment and a more thorough treatment. So yeah, really excited about that. Um, and I will keep you updated. So many exciting things going on. I can hardly stand it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, cheerio.